Welcome to Credo with me, Father Andrew Ebert. This is the first of a new series of podcasts in which I will be introducing and examining one by one the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. And I hope these will be really useful, particularly uh, when it's difficult right now to meet in person and when, with all the restrictions under which we now live, there are perhaps advantages to material that you can listen to whenever you have the time and which you can repeat as often as you like, if need to be. So it may be uh, that you're listening because you're interested in becoming a Catholic and you'd like to know what it is that Catholics believe. Or it may be that you are already a Catholic and would just like to know more about your faith if you feel that that sense of responsibility, uh, that having been gift, given the gift of faith, I have a duty to learn more about it, and acknowledging too that the more I learn, the stronger that gift will flourish within my life. Or it could be simply that if you do already go to Mass regularly, and you stand up Sunday after Sunday reciting those words of the Creed, it could be that you have a little nagging sense that you could find out more about those words that you proclaim, what it is you're saying, what it is you're affirming. After all, it's so important for us to know our faith, to know our faith, particularly as we try to live out that faith in a world that doesn't always understand Catholicism or indeed make any special effort to do so. St. Peter says, in his first letter, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Isn't that beautiful and so necessary today? These words must have been written in, what, the year 60 AD, and yet are absolutely essential to us today. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Now it seems to me these should be some of the watchwords of our Catholic faith. This preparedness to give an account of our faith, to have the confidence to do so, the knowledge and the confidence, and to be able to do it with gentleness and reverence. So, in the weeks that follow, I will be looking at the various articles of the Creed one by one. Now, of course, many books have been written on this subject, including the most important one, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, over 200,000 words structured around the Creed itself. So, I should say straight away that what follows is really not going to be in any sense exhaustive. But it will, I hope, be just, just a useful introduction and perhaps encourage you to sit down with the Catechism itself in due course. So today's episode, the very first words of the Creed. I believe in one God. Three elements to that opening statement, subject, verb, object, I believe and one God. So let's begin with that first word, the letter I. Now, you may well be thinking, my goodness me, if we're going to spend a while talking about one letter, this is going to be a long session. But bear with me. There's an importance to this, not least because uh, whenever you say the creed, you do so in your own name. 
I believe. It's a personal affirmation, and there's a reason for that. So, a bit of history first. Uh, the common name for the creed is the Nicene Creed, because it was first formulated at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 in the town of Nicaea, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. But our creed, the creed of the church that we recite at Mass on Sundays, was not actually finalized at the Council of Nicaea, but at the Council of Constantinople half a century later. And so the proper full name of the creed is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, first proposed at the Council of Nicaea and then revised and accepted at the Council of Constantinople. Now, this original creed, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, was written in Greek, and it began with the Greek word pistevomen, or we believe. However, in the life of the church, the Latin credo, or I believe, was used from a very early period. We see it certainly within a century of the original council, for example, so at least by the year 500, if not sooner. And I say this happened in the life of the church because this is the determining factor. How was the creed lived? And for that matter, how is it still lived today by the church? Or we could put it even more simply, the question we can ask is, when was the creed said? Because the creed was not originally part of the liturgy of the Mass as we have it today. The creed was originally, and very significantly, part of the liturgy of baptism. The creed, this great statement of belief, was what the catechumen, the one about to be baptized, would solemnly profess as he or she was received into the church. And what he or she would say at that moment was, naturally enough, I believe. That distinctive personal proclamation of faith. So we should try to imagine ourselves as an early Christian. If I imagine myself as an early Christian who might have spent three years in preparation for this moment, who now stands up in public and proclaims these words, this is the new basis of my life. This creed which I proclaim on the day of my baptism, this changes everything for me. I believe. Then, in due course, the creed becomes part of the liturgy of the Mass, say by the 11th century, and off you go. But it still has that original and powerful connection with the liturgy of baptism. In the Mass each Sunday, when we say the creed, we are renewing our baptismal faith. Just as we do more formally each year in the Great Mass of Easter, renewing that personal commitment to God and to his church, the commitment that changes our lives. Now, I've heard it said uh, by some people, oh, the creed originally said, we believe that's what it should be. Well, to be sure, in the original Greek, that is correct. But in the life of the church, that is, in the 1500 years or so from around the year 500 until today, it has been, I believe, for 1500 years, with a very brief interruption from the 1970s until the year 2010. But more importantly... Let's just remember again that personal proclamation made by the catechumen, being baptized, which we now renew each Sunday. And as I said, this might have been the culmination of three years of preparation. One of the reasons for that length of time 
is because it was such an enormous change in people's lives. Their life as a Christian will be so fundamentally different from the life they had led hitherto that they needed that deep and comprehensive and extended period of preparation. Now, of course, today, if you're converting to Catholicism, if you're being received into the church, it might be, let's say, that you undertake six months of preparation, almost certainly not three years. But the change is no less significant. This is a complete reorientation of my life, a restructuring of my life around completely different values from the values of the secular world around me. And my commitment to those values, my commitment to that life, the life of Christ in his church, is reaffirmed every time I say the creed, beginning with that small but very important letter, I. Okay, so the second word, believe. Uh, and believe me, I'm not going to spend quite so long on every word in the creed, not because they're unimportant, but because this is, as I say, really just an introduction. So just a couple of points about that word believe. Perhaps we can start by saying what belief is not. Uh, now, uh, you will almost certainly have met uh, atheists in your life. They're not uncommon. I suspect personally that genuine, hard and fast philosophic atheists are actually quite rare, just because it's a really difficult argument to sustain. But that's the point, I suppose, that for many people who claim to be atheists, it's a kind of argument an argument by which they come to rule out the spiritual from life. You can't believe in God because of argument X or argument Y or point Z or whatever. Now, to be sure, there are arguments for the existence of God, some very good ones. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas has the classic five ways, for example. However, this is not belief. This is reason. Now, reason and belief do not contradict each other. Pope St. John Paul II wrote an amazing encyclical on this called Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, in which he talks about faith and reason being the two wings by which we fly to truth, in a beautiful image. Uh, but belief, to say I believe, is not to propose or to win an argument. It's not as if we are giving uh, an intellectual tick or a thumbs up to a really well-argued case. It's much more than this. The Catechism, uh, really drawing again on Pope St. John Paul II, the Catechism says, With his whole being, man gives his assent to God, God who reveals himself to us. With his whole being. This is the difference between a believer and an atheist. The atheist is trying to construct or indeed win an argument, but the believer believes with his or her whole being. It is, and this is the Catechism again, First of all, a personal adherence of man to God, to entrust oneself wholly to God. So this entrusting, uh, this is not an argument or a theory or a hypothesis. It is a relationship, a profound and deeply personal relationship with another. And that other is God. And this is the amazing thing, my faith it's not a theory about sky fairies or spirits or the Big Bang or whatever. It is a relationship with God who loves me, who created me, who knows my beginning and my end, and who calls me to him and to his love.
And then the third and final element of today's article, one God. We mean when we say that God is one. So again, just a couple of introductory points. Firstly, to speak of God being one is to speak about God's sufficiency. God's sufficiency. God is sufficient in himself. He is not uh, a smaller part of a group of gods who individually between them address different needs and have different powers and responsibilities so that if I'm worried about having enough food, I'll pray to the God of the harvest, whoever he or she might be. Whereas if I'm worried about being ill, I'll pray to the God of health, or worried about being attacked, I'll pray to the God of war, etc., etc., etc. And this also means that there are not parts of our life from which God is absent. Every aspect of my life and being falls under his care and his province. There aren't, or there shouldn't be, any godless bits of my life. It also makes my loyalties abundantly clear, or it should do again. I mean, it is obviously just one God. So when I say these words, I'm ruling out a whole lot of other things which I might worship or idolize or invest lots of energy in God, and only God comes first. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that the people of Israel were repeatedly warned about the dangers of polytheism, of believing in many gods. You shall not go after strange gods, is the law proclaimed in the book of Deuteronomy, i.e. other gods, this is the old sense of the word strange, as in foreign or alien or other. And indeed, in one sense, the dramatic history of the Old Testament as a whole is the history of Israel's repeated transgressions of this law, again and again going after strange gods, again and again breaking faith with the one true God. That history is not just the stuff of scripture or indeed of old books. It is our history as well, yours and mine. Our loyalties, as I said, should be clear, but again and again we are tempted to place our trust and invest our energies in other gods. The god of material comfort, for example. The god of academic success, if you're a student. The god of social acceptance. If our need for love does not focus on the source of love, which is God himself, but settles for the lesser alternatives of social approval and having multiple friends or likes on social media. If God is one and undivided, so should our loyalties be. And then just one last observation here, an observation about the implications of this oneness for us as disciples of Christ. Now you may remember that Jesus prays on the eve of his passion for his disciples to be one. He prays for you and I as Christian disciples to be one. But he doesn't pray for this because unity is a good thing or, or a nice thing in a secular sense, like a desirable community attribute, everyone getting along together nicely. He prays for unity because unity is an attribute of Godhead. They may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And again, Jesus says that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. So unity is a divine attribute, a divine quality that we share in. And if, as a community, we are united in love, 
which often means sacrifices like biting my tongue when someone annoys me, sacrifices like putting other people first. If as a community we are united in love, then we reflect that unity which is part of God's nature, the community of love which is the Holy Trinity. It's so important that we are made in God's image. And so the divine life of God, which Jesus Christ invites us to share, is not just an extraordinary gift. It is what we are made for. Which is why all of this, ultimately, makes such good sense. Thank you for joining me, and do join me again next week for the next episode and the next article of the Creed. May God bless you all, and may he specially bless that journey of discovery we make into the beauties of the Catholic faith. Amen.